Well, good morning again, everybody. Would you take a copy of God's Word and be finding the book of Acts as we continue in our Sent series this morning, looking at the missionary journeys of the great apostle Paul, Acts chapter 13. And as you're finding your way there, let me say again, welcome to everyone who's here in the house, particularly at our, our, all of our guests, not only here at our Nine Mile campus, but to those of you at our Spanish Trail campus as well. A very good morning to each and every one of you who are there, as well as those of you that are worshiping with us in our online community. Happy Father's Day uh, to one and all. If you are a guest in one of our two campus locations, be sure to fill out a guest registration card and then turn that in at the end of the service. We have a gift for you this morning just for being here. That should be the case at both of our campuses. Know that we love you, proud that you're here this morning. And look forward to you coming back soon and very soon. Let us know how we can be a better blessing uh, to your life. Y'all ready to get into the Word at both places this morning? Say amen. amen. I'm ready to preach the gospel today, and we want to speak for a few minutes on the subject, what happens when we share the gospel. The gospel is the greatest treasure that any person can ever possess. It's called that in the Bible. Most of the things we treasure, we are prone to hoard, lock it away, stow it away, put it in a safe place. But the Bible says that the gospel is a treasure that we're not to hoard, but that we're to give away. Paul says, I am under obligation to share the gospel both to barbarians and to sophisticated Greeks. He thought it an indebtedness that he had to all peoples, and we should think exactly the same way. What happens when we share the gospel? Well, we surely have a good text this morning in Acts chapter 13 as we take a few minutes to look at two important men and one associate of theirs who are getting ready to hit the road as the first officially sanctioned missionaries of the early church. They're men who travel light and who operated on a light budget. I like to travel. And uh, one of the things that I've learned to do as a part of my traveling existence is to lay out all of my clothes that I intend to take on the bed before I pack them. And then on the other side of the bed, I lay out all the money that I plan to take with me. And I've learned the very important discipline of once I've surveyed both, cut the clothes in half and double the money. Can I have an amen? <laughs> well, these are men who travel light and didn't carry a lot of money with them, operating on a pretty tight budget. Let's read about the first journey this morning. Acts 13, we'll go back and look once again at verse 2. While the church at Antioch was worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. 
And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, let's just stop here for a few moments, and we'll pick up our reading here in just a few minutes. If you were here last Sunday, you know that the church at Antioch has now replaced the church at Jerusalem as ground zero when it comes to the missionary efforts of the church. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now it's the church at Antioch that becomes the primary sending force for this missionary thrust to the ends of the earth, places that had never heard of Jesus, places that had never heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit had spoken to the church at Antioch while they were worshiping and fasting, and he told them in no uncertain terms, I want you to set apart these two men, key leaders in your church, men that you won't think you'll be able to live without, but trust me, I'll take care of you as you send them off. Barnabas and Saul set them apart for the work to which I have called them. And knowing that these two principal leaders had been God-called, there was no way to misunderstand the call of God on their life. That early church boldly sent them out on what would become known as the first missionary journey of the great apostle Paul, sometimes referred to as Paul's Galatian tour. And really, it's a trip that focuses on two primary places. Notice the map up on the screens, if you would, this morning, and you can see a little bit about this journey. It's the simplest of the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. There's Antioch on the far right side in Syria. That's just north, right there in the Mediterranean basin, just north of modern-day Israel. And you can see that they set out from the port city of Seleucia, which was the port for Antioch, and they began a westward journey, taking them to the island of Cyprus. They'd spent an undefined time there on the island of Cyprus before they would leave Paphos on the western end of the island and start their journey north, landing at Italia in Pamphylia, and then going on up into the region of South Galatia. They will visit four cities in South Galatia, the Galatian cities. These were places where Paul and Barnabas would found churches. And probably Paul's first letter was the letter to the Galatians, and it's to these four cities that uh, he's writing. Antioch of Pisidia, a different Antioch, not Antioch where they've come from, but the Antioch in Galatia. Then from there, they would go to Iconium, And Lystra, where Paul would get stoned for the first time, and I mean with rocks, not with booze. And then he would go on, having been left in a ditch for dead. The next day, he would get up bloodied and broken and go on to Derby, preach the gospel where a church would be founded there. And then when the tour was all over, they would backtrack, follow their tracks backward, and then sail back for Antioch. It was a 1,500-mile journey by boat or by foot. 
And it would take him maybe two years, a year and a half to two years in order to make it. Paul's first missionary journey. But the journey begins today as they leave Antioch, jump aboard a ship there at the port of Seleucia, and then set sail for Cyprus. We don't know why they chose to go to Cyprus. Maybe it was because that's where Barnabas was from. So he knew, Barnabas knew the lay of the land in Cyprus. It was a good first choice. They'd never done this before. And so it was a good first choice. Barnabas would know people and he would know how to get around. And maybe there was even some work that had already begun there earlier. We just simply don't know. One thing we do know is that they traipse across the entirety of the island from east to west. They'd preach in the synagogues, that much we know. And that would be a pattern for the Apostle Paul. Paul, of course, was a rabbinic Jew, and the Jews loved the Scripture. And Paul was a Pharisee, well-trained. So he'd have an instant audience. They would welcome him in. They would embrace him. They would give him standing. They would allow him to preach the gospel, and he'd take advantage of that and point to Jesus Christ right there in those synagogues. And so we know they did that. If there was a, a Jewish presence, they would go to the Jew first, as they also went to the Greek. And then, even though we don't have a lot of details, we know they made it all the way across the island because as Luke picks up his narrative here, they're at the far western end of the island of Cyprus in the capital city of Paphos. It's a Roman garrison. It's the seat of the Roman government. And what happens here becomes a pattern of what happens when you and I faithfully share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you do know, don't you, that it is your responsibility as well as mine as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to faithfully give the gospel away. Does everybody understand that? Say amen. It's our responsibility, not just the paid preacher, it's our responsibility to talk up Jesus Christ, to share our story of what the Lord has done for you. And I can make a promise to you this morning, when you faithfully do that, here's a pattern of what's likely to happen to you across the days, weeks, months, and years that you faithfully lived your life for Jesus Christ. First of all, you can be assured there'll be some people that will hear the Word. That's the first thing that will happen. Some will hear the Word. And when I say hear the Word, I mean they'll be open to it. There'll be some people who don't know Jesus that will want to hear about Jesus. They'll want to hear what you have to say, and they'll welcome what you have to say. That was the case for an important man here in Paphos. I mentioned a moment ago that it, it was the Roman seat of government on the island of Cyprus, uh, which meant it had a governor. And we're introduced to that governor here. Verse 7 says that the proconsul or governor, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Don't you wish it always happened like that? Sometimes you've got to knock hard on the door of someone's heart. But it's always wonderful when someone has observed you or heard you talking in other corners. And then they come to you and they want to hear the gospel. And this, of course, means that he was a man who welcomed a conversation about the gospel. Now, this was an important man of high standing. Uh, he shared the same name as Paul. Both of them had the surname of Paulus. And so they could have that as a common bond or a connection. And uh, we don't know why he was open to hearing the gospel. It's very unusual 
for a pagan Roman to be that welcoming of a message that most people of high prominence wanted to keep at arm's length, but for whatever reason he was, maybe he was stressed out by the job, I can only imagine. Maybe he was uh, losing sleep at night because he was accountable to Caesar. I wouldn't want to have lived my life accountable to a nut job like Caesar, and they were all half crazy, if not total lunatics. Maybe that had him up late at night. Maybe he was dealing with personal demons, or maybe he was depressed, or maybe he was discouraged. Maybe he had some rockiness in the relationships of his life. Whatever the case, it's interesting to me that even in his position of privilege and prominence and prosperity, here was a man wondering if there wasn't something more to life, if there was something there that could bring him a moment's rest, something that could give him a modicum of peace and could introduce a degree of purposefulness in his life that even this incredibly important position was not able to bring him. In recent weeks, you may have noticed the news that once again reflects how desperate for hope many people are with the revelation of two very high-profile suicides that made the news. One of them was fashion designer Kate Spade. Uh, Kate Spade, I, could, I mean, I didn't know who she was until Whitney reminded me that she was uh, 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 an entrepreneur responsible for these magnificent handbags. And Whitney quickly reminded me that I'd never bought her a Kate Spade purse. And when I found out how much they cost, I said, you ain't getting one from me now either. <laughs> Very expensive, three, $400 bags, maybe more. She was famous for her accessories, estimated that she was worth $300 million. And then at the same week, Anthony Bourdain, the celebrity chef uh, who I've watched on television for years simply because I want to eat the food that he makes, took people all over the world traveling as a celebrity chef and meeting new people and encouraging people, get up off the couch and go see the world. Quit frittering away time. A man seemingly having such a good time with life. And I read these reports and I'm thinking, how in the world? And both of them were the same way. They had everything that money can buy, worth multiplied millions of dollars each. And yet, in their own mind, life wasn't worth the living. Did you know that in the last 20 years, suicide rates in America have shot up over 30%? 30% in 20 years, and nobody knows how to explain that. We're as prosperous as we've ever been. Things are good. Unemployment is as low as it's been in decades. And people are wondering, why are all these suicides happening? I can tell you a simple reason, and I'm not trained as a social scientist or a social psychologist, but I can tell you why they're happening. People don't have any hope apart from Jesus Christ. They just don't have any. They don't know where to find it. They got everything that money can buy, and yet no hope. But may I make a statement this morning? There is hope. Man, if you're feeling like this, you need to get help. And the church is the best place to run to in order to find it. Because we have a treasure called the gospel. And we're willing to give it away. And it's the only thing that can change the direction of your life. The only place to find hope is in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may I say it this morning, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know 
who holds the future. May I say it, life is worth the living just because he lives. Somebody say amen this morning. And Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. There is hope. You may be at the end of your rope, but because of the gospel, you're never at the end of your hope. Jesus is alive, and he wants to pour his life into yours. But for that to happen, you have to first be willing to hear the word. Paul says as much in Romans 10, where he makes that great statement from the prophet Joel, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can we say it again? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he asks, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. May I ask you a question this morning? Do you remember when you were first open to hearing the word about Jesus Christ? Listen, I'm telling you, if you're a born-again believer, you'll remember when you first heard the word of Christ because that would have been the seminal moment that changed the direction of your life together. And that's why you and I, once we've received the word of Christ, we ought to be the most eager to share the word of Christ. Paul wrote to the Romans, I am eager, I am eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. Why was he eager to share the gospel? Because it's what changed his life. It's what totally radicalized his life from one extreme, in Paul's case, literally, to the other. Because even though much of the world is hardened to the gospel, even even hostile to the gospel, there will be some, there will be some who will be open to hearing the gospel. That's why we have to keep sharing it, because we know there will be some, even in the midst of the hostility, that will want to hear the word and will welcome a hearing of the word. Everybody with me? Amen. Some will hear the word, but having said that, I do need to say this morning, that at the same time, when you share the gospel, some will oppose the word as well. That is also true, inevitably so, for a variety of reasons. But let me tell you, even though that's the case, you shouldn't let that sway you from sharing the gospel at all. There was opposition to the message from this missionary team in Cyprus, and it would only get worse in the coming weeks. But this message was delivered, and Luke tells us about it in verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, but verse 8 says, Elymas the magician, that was his nickname, opposed them, seeking to what? Turn the proconsul away from the faith. Man, you don't ever want to do that. You don't want to ever get in the way of the preaching of the gospel of Christ because bad things happen to people who try to stymie the message of Jesus Christ. This principal opponent is a worker of magical arts. His name is Bar-Jesus, Bar meaning son of, son of Jesus, not our Jesus, but another Jesus. Jesus was a name like Joe back in that day, so there were lots of people named Jesus. 
It's a word that means son of salvation, right? And so that's an odd name for this guy because this guy's the son of the devil. Isn't that right? And Paul will call him that to his name in a play on words. You're no son of Jesus. You're no son of the Savior. You're son of the devil. That's who you are. But he was a magician. That's what his nickname, Elemis, meant, magician or sorcerer. But not like the kind you invite to your kids' parties. Everybody with me? It's not a guy that pulled rabbits out of hats. It's not a guy that turned magic wands into floral bouquets. Not a guy that did card tricks. This was a court wizard who majored in things associated with the occult. The Greeks and the Romans had a fascination with superstition and soothsayers. And this is the kind of guy that Roman leaders would have gone to to consult before going into battle just to make sure that it would not offend the gods for them to do so. It's that kind of magician that Bar-Jesus is. So it's not hard to understand that being the case. He's the court wizard, the court sorcerer, the court soothsayer. It's not hard to understand why he would be opposed to his boss hearing the message of the gospel because if that guy responds to the gospel, then he's out the door. Isn't that right? He's in big trouble. His way of making a living is in jeopardy. If he's proven wrong, he loses the amenities of being connected to the court. And, and you know what? Here's the thing. As you faithfully share the gospel and I faithfully share the gospel, there'll be many people that you know who are kind of like that. They'll resist the gospel. They'll oppose the message of Christ for many of the same reasons. You know why people resist the gospel? They're really, you can boil it down to two reasons. Only two reasons people resist the gospel of Christ. The first is pride. They don't think they need Christ. They have everything under control, got life all figured out, which, of course, as Andy Griffith would say to Barney Fife, that's just pride, 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 pride. That's what it is. Or it's materialism, materialism. I'm blinded by the God of my money. I'm blinded by the God of my homes and properties. I'm blinded by my cars. I'm blinded by my clothes. I'm blinded by the material possessions. I love what I have, and that is my idol, and I don't want it broken. Those are really only two reasons people resist the gospel. It has something to do with pride or something to do with materialism. They either don't believe they need God or they are afraid of what it will cost them to follow God. Either way, God and the gospel are threats to what they believe and what they treasure. Saul, who Luke goes out of his way to tell us now, goes by Paul. He's ministering to a guy typically that has a, a, a first name and a last name, Sergius Paulus, so did Paul, Saulus Paulus. So what you have is Saulus Paulus trying to get to Sergius Paulus, but from here on out, he's going to ditch the Hebrew name Saul and embrace his Greco-Roman name, Paul, because, of course, he sees himself as having been sent to the nations, to the Greco-Roman world, to Greeks and barbarians. He's going to make pit stops to Jews along the way, as we mentioned a moment ago, but he now sees himself as a missionary to Gentiles. And so Luke says, he was also called Paul, 
And so today will be the last time in this series that I'll refer to the man as Saul because he becomes not a different person, but he does take on a new name that matches well with his new role. And his response to this court magician reveals a lot about the seriousness of the gospel and the gospel's serious business. I'm telling you, when the preaching of the gospel takes place, whether it's from this pulpit on a Sunday morning or between you and a neighbor, Monday through Saturday, life and death on the line carries eternity in the balance. And you can see that here, verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Don't you wish the man could just become a little more plain spoken? (laughs) Full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. That's a great story because it's the same thing that had happened to Paul on the road to Damascus when he was an impediment to the gospel of Christ. God stepped in between him and those who were embracing the gospel and he struck Saul of Tarsus blind for a time both of them then as now were people who were impediments and God was dealing with the impediments so that the gospel could be clearly preached and clearly heard and the thing about it is you know it's interesting he calls this guy son of the devil not son of salvation but really that's the only two kind of people there are which are you whose child are you this morning Because you're either a child of God or a child of the devil. There's no gray. The Bible says before we meet the Lord, we are children of wrath. In other words, we're under God's open hostility that's directed towards sin. God loves you, but he hates your sin. And so we're all either bar Jesus or bar Satanah, one of the two. Which are you? And this is very important because one thing that you don't want to do is cooperate with the devil and act as an impediment for the preaching of the gospel. You don't want to keep children from coming to Jesus. When I say children, I mean regardless of the age. Jesus said there was a lot hanging in the balance. Hinder, do not hinder the children to come to me for such is the kingdom of heaven. And it would be better, Jesus said, for a millstone to be hung around the neck of somebody that's getting in the way of somebody else hearing the gospel. It'd be better for a millstone to be hung around their neck and for them to be cast into the sea than to have to face the judgment of God for acting as an impediment to the clear communication of the gospel. And it doesn't matter whether you're an impediment to a child seven years old or to a child spiritually who's 70 years old. You don't want to oppose the gospel. And let me say to all the dads here today, you dads still with me, say amen. Everything will change about your family when you become an eager channel for the gospel in your home. 
rather than an impediment to the gospel in your home. I'm telling you, fatherhood is a heavy load. It's a, it's a position of immense enormity. It's a position of spiritual leadership where husbands and fathers are to lead their homes in a way that demonstrates clearly Jesus Christ. I'm not the king of this castle. Jesus Christ is the king of this home. Jesus Christ is Lord. And those fathers who bless the Lord are fathers who plant seeds of biblical truth in their children so that those children can hear those seeds of truth and eventually embrace them. I'm telling you, when it comes to spiritual maturity and the practice of children, as they transverse the years from childhood into adolescence to adulthood themselves, the faithfulness of the Father is the key factor in their development as people. That's not to put mothers down in any way, but I'm telling you, I've observed this long enough, and I think the Bible would clearly support it. As the father goes, so goes the collective family. That's the Lord's truth. You just look at the lives of grown and adult kids and how they follow after Jesus Christ or how they don't follow after Jesus Christ. Make a connection to the way dad practiced his Christianity and you'll be able to connect the dots. If dads are faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, you all but guarantee your kids will be as well, particularly the boys in your family. When you're not, there's only like a 5% chance your sons will become faithful followers of Christ. I mean, the odds just go out the window. That's not to say God can't save anybody he wants to save. He can. But the gospel truth is, dads, you're the linchpin and God wants you to be eager to share the gospel, not an impediment to the gospel in any way, shape, or form. Not only should the word be written on your hearts, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. God's talking to fathers principally when he says those words. Foster the spiritual growth of your children. Don't oppose it. Don't impede it actively or passively. But sometimes it is true that whenever any of us proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be some who oppose the word. But here's the great news. While that is also true, some will hear the word. Some will hear the word and walk away. Won't do a thing with it. They'll, they'll be okay with hearing it, but they won't do anything with it. Then others will be openly hostile, oppose the word. But when we share the gospel, I'll tell you another thing that will happen often, and that is there'll be some who receive the word. Amen. There'll be some whose lives are changed. See, it's not enough to just hear the gospel. Hearing the gospel never saved anybody. It's a necessary first step. It's not enough to know about the gospel. May I say this morning, for the gospel of Jesus Christ to radically change your life and provide the gift of eternal life and a home eternally in heaven, you have to receive the gospel. You have to embrace the gospel. Some people hear the gospel like the magician here and they get mad. And then there are some people who hear the gospel and they're like the rich young ruler. They go away sad. 
The first instance is somebody's filled with pride, like we talked about a moment ago. The second instance, somebody's life blinded by materialism. One hears the gospel, gets mad. The other hears the gospel, goes away sad because he has great wealth. But for the gospel to take root and to be effective in your life, the gospel has to make a journey of what some people have called 18 inches. It has to move from head to heart. 18 inches, people go to hell over a distance of 18 inches because the gospel might penetrate their head, but it never moves to their heart. And unless it moves to your heart where it's received and embraced, it'll never change your life and you'll never know Jesus Christ. It has to become something that you own. The Bible says in the first chapter of John, Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. He came into his own world, the world that he created, and his own people, the Jewish people, rejected him. He was the fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy. And yet they received him not, verse 12, but as many as received him. To them, to those who welcomed him and embraced him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 2018 this year, the Super Bowl, I'm on an artificial football field this morning. I've got a crowd cheering. I've never had a crowd cheering behind me when I preached before. I'm a little nervous. But the Super Bowl, I'll never forget, 1978, 40 years ago. Dallas Cowboys, America's team, passed to Jim's team, yes, sir, playing Pittsburgh Steelers. 1978, Dallas was behind, less than two minutes to go in the ball game. Roger the Dodger Staubach, who won the Heisman Trophy the year I was born, 1963, playing for the Naval Academy, leading the Dallas Cowboys down the field. They're right there at the goal line. And Roger Staubach spots his tight end, Jackie Smith, one of the greatest tight ends of all time, cutting across the middle of the end zone wide open. And you look, because here's what happened in 1978. Third down three, Dallas at the Pittsburgh 10. Roger back to throw, has a man open in the end zone, caught, touchdown, drop, dropped in the end zone, Jackie Smith all by himself. Oh, bless his heart. He's got to be the sickest man in America. No, I was the sickest man in America. <laughs> I'll never forget that as long as I live. Dallas lost the ball game. They had it won right there. Pittsburgh would have never come back. They would have needed to have scored a touchdown with seconds remaining. Man, the guy was wide open. And that quarterback put the ball right on his numbers. All he had to do was receive it, but he didn't catch it. And you know that happens in churches every Sunday. And it happens out there in the world where you live and breathe every day. The gospel is clearly communicated to somebody who needs it in some way. They hear it, but they just can't catch it but the word of Christ has to be received in order to change a life
And what is it that you hear about the gospel that you believe and receive? I'm going to tell you four things what that means. First of all, it means you understand that you're a sinner. You're a sinner, you're a sinner. And your sin separates you from a holy God and from a eternal relationship with him. Number two, it means that you understand, receiving the word means that you understand God loves you and has a plan for your life. He loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to earth to communicate his love by dying on the cross for you, being buried in a rock tomb, rising again on the third day. Three, receiving the word means that you embrace Jesus Christ as the Son of, the, uh, of God, a Christ who rose from the dead on Easter to defeat the sin of your life and to defeat the forces of evil forever. And four, it means that you believe that in order to have a relationship with God and any certainty of going to heaven when you die, you must confess your sins to Christ and that if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what it means to receive the gospel. I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand God loves me and wants to save me anyway. I understand that God demonstrates his love by sending his son to die on the cross in my place and that Jesus rose from the dead, giving me victory forevermore, and I receive him into my life fourthly as Savior and Lord, and I embrace Him, and I confess and call on the name of the Lord, giving God my sins, receiving His forgiveness, receiving the gift of righteousness, and now I become a child of God forever, and I surrender to the Lordship and leadership of Christ in my life from now until I'm forever in His presence in the kingdom of Christ. That's what it means to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you done it? Have you done it? It happened in the life of Sergius Paulus. The Bible says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Man, he heard that gospel being shared, and it wasn't the miracle that saved him. Now, the miracle got his attention, amen, but the miracle set up the message. It's the message that saves. The Bible says he was astonished, not at the miracle. He was astonished at what? At the teaching. That's what blew him away, the power of the teaching. And I'm just saying this morning, I don't have the power to change your life or anybody else's life. I don't have it. You don't have it either. Paul didn't have the power to change anybody's life, and he knew it. He says to the Corinthians, I didn't come with words of persuasive eloquence. I just came in the power of the cross. Amen. That's the only power I've got, and that's the only reason that the only thing I boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ, because that's the only power that can change a life forever. And let me just say, this is why we never stop telling others about Jesus. Because even though some may only hear and walk away, and even though some might be hostile and opposed, there will be some who receive the word. And you don't know who they are, and I don't know who they are, but they're out there. They're out there by the score, man. They're out there by the hundreds and thousands. Good things always happen when we share the gospel. Some will oppose you, no doubt about it, but what keeps us going is the absolute conviction that even though some might oppose us, others will hear us, and thank God, some 
will receive the word with gladness. And when they do, their lives will never be the same again. This is the word of God. It's a good word. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's put our hands together and praise the Lord.